Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the U.S. Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this week's episode, we talk to Paul Krugman. You may have heard of him. He is a distinguished professor of economics at the City University of New York and a columnist at The New York Times. In 2008, he also won a Nobel Prize, in large part for his work revolutionizing the theory of international trade. The basic theory suggests that trade happens because countries are different. They can capitalize on those differences to specialize and exchange different products. Paul tried to explain why actually a lot of trade that goes on does not seem to be driven by those differences. He explained why a lot of trade is actually between rich countries selling each other similar products. His explanation relied on the fact that it might make sense to specialize in trade, not because you're different, but because there are inherent advantages to producing a lot of one thing. There might be increasing returns to scale, economies of scale. In the context at the time, this was important back in the 1980s, was that some people were worried about Japan using industrial policy to dominate American businesses in certain key industries. We spoke to Paul about the relevance of these ideas today and and how they apply given the current rivalry between the US and China. We also spoke about questions like whether trade increases inequality. Just to warn you, you'll be able to hear a little bit of New York in the background. We recorded this interview in Paul's office in downtown Manhattan. I should also add the warning that in parts, the discussion gets pretty wonky, but bear with us. We started off by talking about the politics and economics of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Paul was an active participant in the debate when the deal passed back in the early 1990s. I started off by reminding him of something that happened back when that original deal was being discussed. Paul was debating an official from the Clinton administration, and he was asked by an audience member at this debate what he thought the impact of NAFTA would be on the number of jobs in the US. Paul said, none. And the official that he was debating exploded and said, it's remarks like that which explain why people hate economists. Yeah. In a way, NAFTA was sold the way a lot of trade liberalization has been sold. I mean, I I think I coined the phrase gap think. Uh, the, The whole trading system is really based on enlightened mercantilism. It's based on the idea exporting is good, importing is bad, but it's worth importing some stuff if you get to export, which is not at all the way that the economic models tell us it works. And NAFTA, NAFTA was particularly egregious because the selling of it was largely, oh, we're going we're to run big trade surpluses with Mexico, and that'll add lots of jobs. And there were two, two big problems with that. One was that even if we had run big trade surpluses, that would have just meant somewhat higher interest rates. We would have had a different composition of jobs, but probably no difference in the total number of jobs. And furthermore, you know, we did not end up running big trade surplus with Mexico because, you know, the years before NAFTA, Mexico was flavor of the month. And there was a lot of capital flowing in. And Mexico was running big current account deficits. But that, as it so often does, ended in grief. And pretty soon afterwards, Mexico was forced to run big trade surpluses. And those are down, down. But it's still the, the whole notion that Mexico was going to be a sink for U.S. products was ill-advised. And it was obvious, even even in 1993, I think, when I I wrote something about it, that 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 was not going to happen. So that was bad argumentation. I'm pretty sure I know why we did NAFTA, which had nothing to do with any of that. It was, we did NAFTA because it was a a foreign policy move. 
You had a reformist government in Mexico. Mexico was actually moving towards becoming a genuine democracy. And they had basically asked for an agreement. And to have turned them down would have been a slap in the face of the of the reformists. So it was the the real motives. Actually, it's a lot, again, it's a lot like trade in general. I mean, a lot of the whole post-war trading system, whatever the economics may be and whatever the ostensible arguments for it, a lot of it was based on the belief that trade promoted peace. And in this case, it was, you know, let, let's, let's offer opportunities to our southern neighbor who seems to be getting a little bit more of our current place. So it, it's all water under the bridge. I mean, the main thing now is, is NAFTA created facts, as they say in, in the Middle East. And, um, and those facts make it very, very hard to unravel it. And so we aren't. So we're not unraveling NAFTA, but now we have this new version, the USMCA. If you were a spin doctor in the Trump administration, how would you be trying to sell it in a more economically responsible way? Oh, well, relative to no deal at all, the, it would be hugely, hugely disruptive to break this thing up. If you buy an American car, where is that car made? And the answer is, well, all over North America, including Mexico. And the, the wiring might be done in Mexico. The engine might be from Mexico. Some of, so to suddenly throw up barriers, you might be seeing some new auto plants opening, but you'd be seeing auto plants closing all over the place. And and it would, in fact, at least in, in those industries that are tightly integrated, they would be losing a lot of market share to European and Japanese producers. So in terms of just plain maintaining continuity, it would be a really bad idea to break this thing up. And no, so I mean, that the defending what Trump has done to the deal, the, the twiddles on it are quite dubious, a little bit hard to, to defend those, but the, uh, but they're also not very, impo- not very important. They're not trivial, as I've learned from you, Chad, but it's that the case for not breaking this thing up is, is pretty much overwhelming. As the Trump administration tries to pass the UMCA, one of the fights is going to be about labor standards and how enforceable they are. Do you think that's the right argument to be having at this point? Labor standards is a really, it's a tricky area. And it's, my, my feeling is that you don't want to be doctrinaire on either side. Obviously, what a lot of people in U.S. labor movement would like is they would like labor standards that basically prevent poor countries from competing on the basis of low wages. And if you do that, then that's maybe good for U.S. workers, but it's devastating to the poor countries. But if you start demanding that Mexico get anywhere close to U.S. average wages, that's going to be, that's basically saying that Mexico can't export. And so that's a, that's the bad sign. That said, there's some wiggle room and some opportunity to help Mexican workers a little bit. There's some range in which you have to imagine that they're, that having a, an externally imposed labor standard will in fact mean somewhat higher wages for Mexicans in export sectors. And that's, that's good for Mexico. Uh, it's good. For, it's, like, it's good for those workers, and it probably doesn't hurt their exports very much. In a way, it's like the minimum wage debate here. Even people quite left of center in the U.S. economics profession would agree that that a thirty dollar an hour minimum wage would be a bad thing, but twelve is almost certainly a good thing, and fifteen is probably a good thing. And so you get there's some range in which extra labor standards in Mexico can work, as long as it doesn't really impair their their ability to sell. And then the question is, can we actually expect the U.S. Congress to to draw that line in the right place? And then you start to get pessimistic. Thinking about the debates that we're about to have and, and also how NAFTA and, and trade has been referred to by the Trump administration, there's this idea that trade deals are the boogeyman. Do you think there's a way of making trade less poisonous? Do you think something needs to change? Like, like everybody who 
has done trade stuff for a, you know, a long time. I was taken aback by political developments. I was never a Pollyanna about trade, but I didn't really think that the issues of losers from trade was a, a huge issue. And then I think partly because of the political shocks, Trump, Brexit, we sort of start to have a step back and let's think about it. And also some of, some of the academic literature. So the author Hansen on the China shock, a lot of us said, you know, we've been missing, uh, particularly missing the the extent to which trade, rapid changes in cha- trade are disruptive. And I think it's it, that was fair to say that we, we had not fully taken on board the troubles trade can cause. That said, my I've been working on this stuff a bit more recently, and, and, and I think we may have swung too far in the other direction, that we're taking what is really, in terms of substance, is much more of a one-time episode than an ongoing thing and making it central to our story. The, the China shock is really from late 90s up till about 2006, the, the peak of the housing bubble here, the, the big swing of the U.S. into trade deficit more or less corresponds to that. And since then, actually, it's hard to get much in the way of a shock, a trade shock in, in your stories, either aggregate or, or on the China front. So that we made the economics is really not a ongoing thing. And the, the politics, it's not at all clear that there's a big constituency demanding protectionism. And we, I've been just looking at some metrics. It basically was not raised at all in the midterm. And there doesn't seem, on NAFTA, who's the constituency demanding changes? This seems to be almost entirely Trump and a couple of people he brought into the White House. There's, there's really no, no strong interest group behind it. So maybe it's, it's, this, this is something of a passing storm. It's, there are, even on Trump, there are, it looks like immigration has much more resonance with at least part of the electorate than, than we used to think it would. But trade hasn't really caught on with anybody except a really inner circle around Trump. Can I push back on on a couple of things? So one could interpret from the absence of trade in the debate around the midterms as actually reflecting a lot of consensus between the Republicans and the Democrats on this issue. If the Democrats didn't think that they could beat the Republicans in terms of being tough on trade, then why would they bring it up? And then the other the other point, I suppose, is that the steel industry has obviously been a very vocal advocate for protectionism and they've got what they wanted. Cars is obviously very different. And then finally, on China, it does seem like there's a definitely on, on Capitol Hill among, you know, in Congress, there's this, you know, a desire to, to really toughen up there. And not just because of manufacturing job loss necessarily, but a kind of general sense that something needs to be done about all the issues that were mentioned by the Trump administration there. Yeah, I think you want to say, yeah, steel. I mean, if you if you go narrow enough, you can find a, an individual industry, though even some parts of the steel industry don't seem too happy with this stuff. Because some of, yeah, but, the, um, but all the downstream industries, like autos, are not at all happy with what's gone on. And then what I thought was striking was that Republicans weren't running on, you know, we have a, we have a president who's standing up to foreigners on trade. It just wasn't there. You just can't, I mean, the, the surveys of what were the themes of campaign ads don't even mention trade as, a, as an issue. It's just not on the list and because it just wasn't out there. And so I think there's something, it's really nothing happening on that front. China is, uh, is a different case. I mean, the Chinese are bad actors in ways that I think are, a lot of people can agree on it. Although then we start to, if you think the bilateral trade imbalances is the key measure of Chinese misbehavior, then we have a, a real argument. And I think you find re- relatively few economists would agree. But intellectual property, there was a period 
it's not relevant now, but when when we were the whole world was depressed and at the zero lower bound on interest rates, the Chinese undervaluation of the of the renminbi was was a real issue. So I think you can argue that there is a, a genuine problem with China. And then if we ask how does this change our view of you know, does does something need to change the way we deal with trade? Yeah, I guess you could say that the way if you think about how China China's accession to the WTO, which was really quite dubious, they were given the privileges without really any enforcement mechanism on things like IP or they've been been able to continue a lot of industrial policy and in non-transparent ways that probably violate the the uh, the way that we you know the understandings that make the trading system work I mean we, we even if economists think that subsidizing an export is actually doing the importing country a favor the fact that matters the political economy of trade really depends on on countries not being allowed to do that and the Chinese are not it's hard to say what they're doing but it's, it's so China China is a really it's a, it's a highly non-transparent less than free market economy that is being admitted to the system as if it were a country like uh, like us or or Germany or, and that's that's a real that's that's a real friction I mean I, I doubt that if I had a list of top 10 issues bedeviling the world, that Chinese trade practices would make it onto that list, but they probably make it to the top 20, and they certainly are not. They're, they're, when you have, the, you know, by some measures, the world's biggest economy, depends on, on your measure, that is really not, a, not playing by the rules, then that's a problem. I should clarify. I was I was playing devil's advocate. I think I do I yeah. do very much subscribe to your view, <laughs> and I think you know that we had a, a few episodes ago. Bruce Stokes, who was telling us about polling and and essentially trade, is just isn't a priority for voters. You know, they, if you ask them whether they like it or they don't, well, they'll say one thing. But then you know, they also seem to be driven very much by the what the politicians that they support say. That's what I was about to say. Trade is one of those issues on which people actually, for the most part, have no opinion. If you ask people what do you think about the WTO, they'll say what what's that what's that? If you ask what do they think of tariffs, it would be an interesting question. What how many people know what a tariff is? And so there but people pick up cues. And so I believe the polling shows a big reversal. Democrats are suddenly very free trade, Republicans are protectionists, and that's just said that's a that's a, you know, it's a it's a tribal identity marker, not a not an actual view on policy. So is the way to get out of this then to get politicians to stop talking about trade? Well, yeah. I mean in fact I think if if and when Donald Trump is gone, you might find that trade as an issue just abruptly drops vastly. The temperature will, will, will decline very rapidly because this is a personal obsession of his. his. His party will back him in whatever he wants to do, but they don't seem to have any particular concern about it. As I said, there really isn't a, a strong interest group. You know, there, there, don't want to say that there's nothing. I mean, as we were going, it was clear that the warm and fuzzy feelings about trade liberalization and trade agreements were pretty much gone even before Trump came along. That the 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 world had changed. That that the U.S. was no longer feeling magnanimous. That the public was suspicious with some with some good reasons. I think at some level, a number of people did grasp that trade agreements were not really trade agreements anymore, but mostly about IP and disputes. You know, they didn't know that, but they knew that they knew that somehow it wasn't about them. And TPP was a felt to me. I mean, there, there was a good case for it, but it was also problematic and in many ways exemplified all this stuff. And I felt like it was a bridge too far. I certainly felt it wasn't something that, given the parlous state of U.S. politics, that Obama should have been spending political capital on. And I could, you know, I might be wrong because the failing to do TPP is starting to have some 
geopolitical consequences. But I think we we were we had reached the end of that road, the long march from you know basically from from trade agreements program to to the Uruguay round was pretty much over. That we were it was more about maintenance or should have been mostly about maintenance and the idea that ever more, ever freer, ever more integrated was not a, a goal that made sense. Just to be clear, that was the process of trade liberalization taking place between 1947, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the trade liberalization that followed all the way through the Uruguay round in the mid-1990s that set up the WTO. We're going to return to China because I want to talk more about China. But before we do that, I'd love to go wonky for a while, sure. if that's okay. And so... Could you name something in economics that is true but not trivial? This is a classic question. Paul Samuelson famously said, comparative advantage. The idea that even if you're better at everything than some other country you gain, even if you're worse at everything than some other country you gain from trading with that country. And that's, that's the famous, it's, it, it's a truth that remains elusive to many people. Why is comparative advantage so elusive to people? First of all, it's... I, I know. I, what I would say about comparative advantage is that it is inherently, boy, wonky is where we're going here. It's inherently general equilibrium. It's about things adding up. It's about resources you, which you can use here but not there. And if you use them here, then you can't use them there. And so it, you have to think through what happens in, in, in two markets. You have to think about what happens in two countries. It's not, it's a tiddlywinks version of general equilibrium. It's a very simple thing. But that already puts it past the simple notion, well, if I'm better, I should be doing this. In textbooks, you always try and explain it by making it personal. As somebody who's a, a fantastic um, engineer and also really good at mowing her lawn uh, might still want to hire somebody to mow her lawn, that sort of thing. You know, that's the, and, and if you put it in that way, people understand it. But actually, my experience from textbook feedback is that when you try and, and turn that concept loose, uh, it to talking about trade between countries, you think that the, the, the carryover is obvious, but the students don't. <laughs> so it, it's a, it's a, it seems to be a fundamentally hard thing to get across. It's a tricky concept. And as you said, it, it relies on lots of assumptions. You've got these systems that you have to construct. Do you believe in it? Do you think it's relevant? Oh, comparative advantage is hugely relevant. I, I believe in it. It happens. It's a big factor. It probably drives the majority of world trade, it's not the only story. That's what's really important. So if I ask, if you ask, why is the shirt I'm wearing made in Bangladesh? I would about to say that U.S. garment workers are more productive than Bangladesh. I'm not sure we have any garment workers, but if we did, they would be more productive than Bangladesh. But, but we're a lot better at other stuff. And that's why, that's why we import shirts from Bangladesh. And it's mutually beneficial to us and Bangladesh that we do that. But it's not the only story. And so you know, my whole life is basically built on saying, okay, well, there's, there are these other stories. So these other stories, why hasn't the explanation of comparative advantage been enough? If you look at world trade in the 1970s, at that point, a number of people had already noticed that the post-war growth in trade was really hard to explain with comparative advantage because so much of it was between similar countries. It was France and Germany, Canada and the U.S. were doing were the places where there was a lot of trade growth. And furthermore, if you tried to say, well, maybe there's something we... Some, unobserved difference between these countries. There's, you know, we can look at what they sell to each other and that's how we can tell what their comparative advantage is. Turned out that the products they were selling to each other were pretty similar. And in, in some cases, pretty much the same thing. So one of the big trade expansion things was the US-Canadian Auto Pact. And we sold them autos and auto parts and they sold us autos and auto parts. And now, in fact, if you looked at that, it was not 
the Autumn Pact was not any mystery at all. What happened was that before the Pact, Canada had a essentially the same auto industry we did, but at one-tenth the scale, which made it quite inefficient. And by specializing on a limited range of products, exporting those and importing stuff, they got big gains in efficiency, and we got some gains in efficiency. So it was all about increasing returns, the advantages of the inherent advantages of specialization, which is kind of an obvious thing, but one of those obvious things that somehow was that all part of the way we talked about trade because we didn't know how to model it formally. And what happened in the late 70s was that several people simultaneously and independently, me among them, said, you know, if we take these kind of silly but clever models for industrial organization that we've been developing, and we could use those to make sense of and formally model increasing returns trade, that gives you another layer of explanation for trade. It explains why we have trade between similar countries and so much of it is intra-industry trade. And it seems trivial, it seems obvious. You can explain it now in three sentences, but it was revelatory. It really opened people's minds and, and made sense of a lot of data that hadn't been making sense before. Did that change as you know the 20th century proceeded? Oh, there's a kind of iron law I, I think in economics is, which is that whenever you have a fundamental new idea that explains the world, the world promptly begins moving away from it. So just at the moment we said, okay, now we understand why similar countries trade based on increasing returns, not comparative advantage. You had this massive opening up of developing countries, this huge expansion of north-south trade, which is comparative advantage. So just at the moment when we finally figured out why non-comparative advantage trade was such a big thing, suddenly good old-fashioned comparative advantage came back into its own in a big way. And what was the driver there? What were the differences in comparative advantage? Well, mostly that you have countries that are less productive, less educated, coming into the world market in a big way. This, you know, obviously, the biggest of those is just China. China goes from being a hermetic, autarkic nation to, to joining the world economy. But also, there was this massive move towards trade liberalization. Emerging markets, developing countries had spent the first 40 years after World War II trying to develop with import substituting industrialization by limiting imports, focusing on their domestic markets. They kind of en masse decided to turn that around and start making things open to the world market. I mean, Mexico Mexico actually made the big move before NAFTA. They, there was a, a really drastic liberalization in Mexico between 85 and 88. And then in the years that followed, you really see this happening all across. You see it happening in India, which was used to be incredibly inward looking. So all of these countries that are very different from the United States and Europe are now joining the world market, which opens the opportunity for a lot of trade that's based upon the fact that they're different. Comparative advantage is essentially trading to take advantage of your differences. And what that often means, Bangladesh is my favorite case now, is I think in Bangladesh the real issue is that they're just a much, for whatever reason, development remains a lot of largely mysterious, but they're just a less productive economy. But there are some things where that seems to matter more than others. And the place where it matters least is apparel. And so countries that are tend to be they're kind of ac backward economically will often still be pretty good. You know, have something like 40% of advanced country productivity when it comes to sewing clothing together. And when those countries opened up to world markets, you suddenly had this huge increase of trade based upon comparative advantage and with labor intensive or fairly simple things that relied that don't require a as sophisticated an economic ecosystem really taking off in, in developing countries. So that's the 
return a comparative advantage trade. And then there's one more thing, which is the box. So containers, containers make it, it's not so much the cost of getting across the ocean as it is the cost of getting it on and off the ship and onto the next. So containerization really reduced the cost of doing business between countries and particularly the cost of keeping track of stuff. And I think it's mostly containerization that lets you break up value chains. So all of a sudden, there's a whole new range of potential labor-intensive stuff, which is we started importing a lot of electronics from China. Now it's starting to be that China is really exporting electronics. But for a while there, it was basically just taking electronics created in other places and putting them into plastic containers. So you have a whole new range of industries which are also available for this comparative advantage trade. So that's that was a big, big change in the world. When I started teaching trade in the late 1990s, I used a lot of your work, including your piece in Scientific American with Robert Lawrence. And that piece basically made the point that international trade with developing countries at that point was not the cause of rising wage inequality in the United States. Can you walk us through that argument? Yeah. Well, my preferred work on that is not the piece with Lawrence because we, we moved on a bit. And I did a Brookings paper in 95, but other pe- and a number of other things. So I think there was never a question that the direction was as the critics said. We, we've known for a long, long time that, that if you trade with countries that have got you know, different resource mix than you do, it is going to move the distribution of income. And in particular, you know, if you are a skill or a, an education intense, an education abundant country with a lot of highly educated workers, and you trade with countries that are less so, that's going to move the distribution of income in your country against people with less education. And in fact, reduce their real wages. It's not just a relative change, but an actual, an actual real reduction in wages. The question was the size. And the basic argument circa you know, 1993, 1994 was that, okay, this is real, but the numbers aren't enough to make it a huge deal. So at that point, imports of manufactured goods from developing countries were around 2% of GDP. And you could try to say, what if, the, what if those countries weren't in the market? The, do what the lawyers call a but-for argument. What would the distribution of income look like but-for the fact that we're trading with these, with these countries? And you could either do a model directly, try to feed that in, and you got a couple of percent on the high school college wage differential. Or you could do a little trick, which was that analytically trading education-intensive goods for labor-intensive goods is as if less educated workers were moving to your country and some of your educated workers were moving abroad. And so you could you could do that and say, how big is the change in, in relative implied labor forces. Actually, the best paper title I ever came up with was something about this, which was titled, But For, As If, and So What. And all of those things suggested smallish numbers. They suggested 2-3% on the high school college wage differential. We were just talking, though, about how you know the nature of trade changed very rapidly around that time, or you know had, right. was starting to change. So how did that answer change? So that was a weird thing, because we, we moved into this we had this debate with pretty much a consensus that there was a positive effect on income inequality, but it was small. And the debate sort of dropped. And again, history always is out to get you. So then the immediate thing that happened then was trade with developing countries ballooned. And so now it's you know, trade as a share of GDP with low-wage countries is something like three times what it was when we reached that consensus. Does that mean that the effects have tripled? And the answer, I think, is no, because a lot of that trade is value-added trade. So it's really, it is when we import, you know, I've got an iPhone sitting next to me here. With the, when we import an iPhone from China, the China is actually only a, a fairly small part of the, of the 
cost of that iPhone, most of it is actually the guts are made mostly in Japan, Korea, which is no longer a low-wage country, or Germany. And so the factor content of the trade, the, the extent to which we are implicitly importing Chinese workers, is a lot less than the dollar value of the trade would indicate. So, but the effects are surely larger now. So there's going to be, if you're going to say that there's some widening of income inequality due to trade, yeah, and it might be might be 5% on the college, might be a bit more than on the college high school wage differential. It's hard to, to estimate now because the trade flows have become so complicated with these international value chains. The other thing, by the way, that I think kept this from being a bigger story was that it became increasingly clear that rising income inequality was not mainly about college high school. It was mainly about the top 1% pulling away from the rest. And that equity fund managers and high school teachers have got similar levels of education. So that was not about education. There was no obvious reason why importing labor-intensive goods from Asia should be causing CEO pay to, to you know, rise from 30 to, to 300 times that of the ordinary worker. Other elements of your work that I remember teaching that was sort of revolutionary was that much of the research that was coming out suggested that government intervention on trade policy could actually be welfare improving for a country so that free trade wasn't always the optimal policy. So if, for example, if there's increasing returns to scale and you can direct that as a government through a policy some way, it might make sense for you to actually subsidize certain industries, or it might turn out that the optimal tariffs might not necessarily be zero. Can you talk us through, you know, the evolution of, of how that arose? Yeah. In order to, if you want to get increasing returns into your story about trade, then right there, you are already stepping outside the competitive model where everything is everything is optimal and efficient and government intervention can only make things worse. So that you know, immediately suggests that you might have some scope for activist policy. It was kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, increasing returns said that the gains from trade are bigger and therefore screwing it up is, has, is more costly. But on the other hand, it said that the trade that happens if it's left to itself may not be optimal. You might be able to do better. And uh, so you have some case for possibly subsidizing industries. And so we had a whole outburst of strategic trade policy was the, the, the term that people were using, much of which was in context. A lot of it was revolved around Japan, fears that Japan was using industrial policy to grab the good industries. I, have to, I think if you go back, you'd find that I was always skeptical, open-minded, but skeptical. And the reason was that the, the arguments were subtle and contingent. You could come up with scenarios. It was no longer the case that just free trade is best was true. But if you asked what was the thing you ought to be doing, it was very, very sensitive to the details, sensitive to parameters that were really hard to estimate. And of course, then you were also had the issue of uh, who is supposed to be making this. And if you actually, you know, if I had in fact spent a year in the U.S. government in 1982-83, so I had some sense of what actual policymakers sound like. And that was not encouraging for the idea of sophisticated industrial policy. So it was a... It, it was a possibility and certainly something where you might argue for extra vigilance against predatory policies by countries, but not an easy case for intervention in uh, trade policies, except you know, if, you, if you had some really, really compelling reason to believe that there were 
external economies in some particular industry, maybe. In the end, it's just like the old line, uh, uh, George Stigler uh, said that if saying that we should, the government should intervene because the market isn't perfect is like saying that you should give the prize in a, in a singing contest, it's appropriate here, this, to give the prize in a singing contest to the, to the second contestant because you just heard the first. I remember reading this a paper of yours where you, where you essentially made that point that even though it's possible in theory for this to happen, the big concern is that government policymakers either don't have enough information or they may get captured by industries. In the context of today, do you think that you were right to be worried that this type of modeling and results might actually end up getting misused by government policymakers? In a way, maybe I, my worries were too high level. I mean, we have a lot of bad moves on trade, they're not based upon, you know, it's not, it's not that Donald Trump has read about imperfect competition in trade and thinks that that's the basis for his policies. What I felt all along, as soon as the strategic trade policy literature began to emerge, you know, I, I came went into increasing returns in trade, not because it was supposed to be a policy application, it was just supposed to be, how do we explain what we see? But there were people who wanted to grab it as the script that said that protectionism is the right thing to do. And the script was, and now we will have disproved the classical economics and we can do other stuff. And that was not the script that either that the intellectual logic was pushing you towards and certainly wasn't the script that I and the other new trade theorists were pushing towards. In fact, probably the most important policy application of this increasing return stuff was in the opposite direction. If you go back to... 1992, Single European Act and all of that, there were claims about big gains from integration that rested heavily on fairly abstruse and, I have to say, very fragile models. And they were using increasing returns models to justify more liberalization, not less. As it turns out, I think it's very hard to make the case that those big gains ever did materialize. So that was also kind of an abuse of the models. But in practice now, when we have bad trade policy, it's cruder than any of that. It's not that the protectionists in the U.S. or the Brexiteers are misusing strategic trade policy arguments. It's they're people who haven't understood what David Hume was saying in 1753. We're worrying way too much about high-level thinking. I want to bring us back to China. If you think about any country where returns to scale are in effect, yeah. then China's the obvious example. I suppose, you know, of anywhere, you know, is it possible that they could get it right, right? That they could direct industrial policy in a way that actually does make them richer. Leave policy aside for a moment. If we look at what China does, the overall pattern of what they export is pretty much reflects fundamentals, I think. They're, they're still relatively low skill, low wage coming up, but they're still that kind of country and they export mostly labor-intensive products. And the overall pattern of Chinese trade is, is comparative advantage-driven. We look within that particularly if you look at the geography of production within China, it's a glorious case of industrial clustering. There's a button city, there's an underwear city, there's a cigarette lighter city. And those are all driven by the kinds of increasing returns stories that new economic geography, the area I got into after trade, was all about. And it's wonderful if you're into these things. China, in a lot of ways, their landscape, almost literally, looks like America in 1900. You know, when we had all of these localized industrial clusters, the you know, detachable collar and cuff industry of Troy, New York, that sort of thing. And those are an important source of advantages. So China has a comparative advantage in labor-intensive products generally, but they clearly have a big increase in returns-driven advantage in cigarette lighters. 
because there's that one city that produces all the world's cigarette lighters. Is that an advantage that they capture at the expense of the rest of the world? I think probably not. I think the, or at least very little of it. They pretty clearly most of that is just passed on in lower prices. So I don't think it's actually problematic. And that is, I guess, one of the real concerns if you want to be concerned about China. If we start to get into industries of the future, strategic industries, China would be a big enough player that if it's able to Im hidden implicit subsidies or hidden protection of markets, that it might be able to capture some of those industries. It's something to keep an eye on, although if you've been in this business for a long time, you know just how bad everybody is at guessing what are the strategic sectors. So you know, if you go back to around 1990 or late 80s, the rising sun era when Japan was going to rule the world, at that point, everybody thought that random access memories was the, the crude oil of technology, that whoever controlled the RAM production was going to rule the world. And then it turned out that RAMs are a commodity, and they're mostly mo they're moving to lower and lower wage countries, and it's not a business that you especially want to have at all. So that you know, we were totally wrong about that, and that's happened many times. You go back 20 years before that, people thought that nuclear power was the industry of the future. So if there were a key strategic industry, would we know what it was? Would the Chinese know what it was? It's not completely off the charts. That if if we really do see, and particularly actually, if you you know, strategic industries in the sense of you know, not economics, but like strategy, strategic industries. Then, then, then you know, China is, is, is certainly not our friend. It's not necessarily our enemy, but you worry about that. I mean, I, I don't actually know what the current state of the rare metals situation is, but that's, you know, that's kind of stuff that you do worry about. That rare metals case, just for listeners, was when China blocked the export of rare metals, That's essentially right. abusing its monopoly power over, over yeah. that area. China had come to dominate that business, the rare metals export, partly because they have deposits, but also because it's an extremely environmentally destructive process to mine them and, and refine them, and, and China was willing to do that, and, and we weren't, but then found ourselves being alarmingly at their mercy. So all that being said, when I read the Trump administration's Section 301 report that's very much worried about Made in China 2025 policy and all of these industries of the future, whether it's artificial intelligence or robotics or civil aircraft, I read that and thought of the increasing returns to scale in strategic trade policy literature. So it's as if the Trump administration seems to be worried about that as a potential outcome. Let's put it this way. Somewhere in the bowels of USTR, are people who probably do know this literature. In general, those are the kinds of things that people would worry about if you're going to worry about it. Now, whether history says that their guesses about the industries of the future are probably wrong, because everybody's are, and China's ability to actually lock those industries up is probably much more limited than we think. But, you know, if the O'Rourke administration or somebody, you know, the next administration wants to cast a highly skeptical eye on what China is doing and possibly take a hard line, that's certainly something that could be justified. And you know, I guess at some point you're not going to completely forbid any kind of action. But the trouble is, if you're doing so much irrational stuff as we are on trade policy, it's very hard to make a case for even what might make sense. Do you think that the Trump administration gets any criticisms of China right? Um, grudgingly, I, have, I would say yes. Intellectual property, the Chinese are just terrible at that. And we, we know that. And they are not getting better. And since the U.S. is a, still an ideas-generating place, that hurts our national income, although it's not clear how much of that particular piece of national income trickles down to ordinary U.S. workers. Let's put it this way. We don't know whether the Chinese are at all likely to succeed in monopolizing the industries of the future. But if you ask the question, would they try 
might are they in fact probably trying to do that? The answer is yes, and they are are they scrupulously adhering to WTO rules in so doing? The answer is no. So there's a valid criticism. They're not the biggest threat facing the US economy in general. In general, international trade just matters a whole lot less to our future than people tend to think. But the Chinese are not good guys. They're bad actors in the system. It's not relevant now, but during in 2010-2011, I was for taking a much stiffer line on their currency policy. So it, it is certainly possible to say that getting tough with China is sometimes appropriate. Sometimes in this policy of getting tough with China, it seems almost as though the US is trying to carve out China from, you know, and set up these competing spheres of influence. Do you think that's possible? No. We're not big enough, first of all. I mean, in, in you know, the time when the U.S. could really try to, when the U.S. could try to dictate the terms of how the international system works are really behind us. There are really, I mean, at this point, almost three co-equal players, I would say, on trade, which is us, the European Union, and the Chinese are pretty much getting there now as well. And, and no one of us can really dominate the system one way or another. And in terms of carving out a sphere of influence, it's just too, you know, trade is flowing in all directions. And to the extent that there are spheres of influence, geography is going to matter, gravity. The thing we know best in international economics is the gravity equation, which says trade between two countries roughly proportional to the product of their national incomes and inversely related to the distance. And distance matters a lot, even in today's world. So if you say to a lot of countries, you have to make a choice, China or us, a bunch of them are going to say China because they're closer. So no, I don't think if the idea is that we can somehow exclude the Chinese, wall them off from other players, not going to happen, especially not going to happen when U.S. soft power is at the weakest it's been in, well, ever, basically. What are the biggest risks then of trying to actually do this? Trade war is, you have escalation. You start to get, you can see that happening with, with us in China now. It's a, it, I don't think anybody is doing a, a careful economic assessment. It's just tempers are rising. People are getting madder and the, you start to break the uh, understanding down. So the, the reason we want a trading system is to restrain both the rational and the irrational impulses to do mutually destructive trade measures. And that can break down. It's this, this trade system didn't happen. You know, the invisible hand didn't create it. Some very visible hands did it. And it, it's, it's always, it's kind of a miracle that we got, had so many years of, of trade peace, if you like, but it's not, it's not guaranteed and we could, could break down quite easily. Now, what does that do? It reduces global efficiency a little bit. I mean, more than a little bit. If you ask, the ask, try to ask, what are the consequences of a global trade war? Depends a lot on the model, but certainly can make the world a few percent poorer. It's particularly bad. It's not equally spread. So small countries left out in the cold can be hurt a lot. And that in turn has all kinds of, of implications, human, social, and you know, political. You can, the idea that free trade promotes peace is a little flaky, but if you ask, could a global trade war create crises that would lead to war? Yeah, it could. And then I think the the lesson from the China shock story is that long run impacts don't tell the whole story. You've got to think about disruption. We've had an international system built upon open markets. We have these complex globe-spanning production networks. 
get into a trade war and you're suddenly disrupting that and you're leaving a lot of capital, a lot of workers doing the wrong thing in the wrong place given the changed environment. So there's a lot of disruption along the way. I've made this joke. It's about people who say that, well, there was a China shock, therefore we should have protectionism. And it, but you know that China shock is, is, is more than a decade in our past now. And then it becomes like the old joke about the motorist who runs over a pedestrian, says, oh, I'm sorry, let me fix that, and backs up and runs over the pedestrian again. I have a final question, which is, are you enjoying trade being in the news again? And will you be a bit sad when all of this goes away? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, look, if you're a wonk, with particular areas of policy expertise, and also now, you know, in my in my second career or whatever it is as as a newspaper pundit, it's always a special pleasure when events bring the two halves of my life together. I mean, I used to teach a trade a trade course at Princeton, which was mostly more like a Chad course than a trade theory course. It was at the Wilson School, and it was trade policy and it was institutional, and it was getting harder and harder to teach because there really wasn't anything happening. Trade policy was just such a boring field. And now, you know, we, now we've got Trump making it a big issue. So it's in my comfort zone. I mean, it obviously it doesn't mean I'm really wishing for a global trade war, but it does, it does make my, my life a little more pleasant in small ways. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you both to Paul Krugman for spending his afternoon with us and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York for allowing us the space to set up our Trade Talks mobile studio. As always, a big thanks to Colin Warren, our audio expert. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to trade talks, taking two weeks holiday around this time of year is better than one. I think we should take three. Three weeks? We need your voice to get better. <laughs> it's getting better, don't worry. Mm-hmm.